Well, welcome you back to our study of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 6 today. And these the 5, 6, and 7 of Hebrews introduces kind of a theme and an idea that takes a little while to develop. Uh, and chapter 6 is kind of a step aside from the, the context and the flow of the letter or of the sermon. Uh, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I'm still struggling with my voice, recovering from COVID. And so occasionally it begins to weaken on me and... and um, I'm going to do the best I can, all right? Let's kind of review a little bit. Remember, we're making an argument that Christ is better, the Christian age is better, that life as a Christian coming out of the old law, coming out of Judaism into something brand new is better. He's urging an audience that is Jewish to not slip back. They've accepted Christ, but they're trying to make Christianity like Judaism. Those people were called Judaizers. They're dealt with a lot in Scripture. In some of Paul's letters, they're dealt with in the book of Acts. We actually see the account of how conflict developed and was resolved among them. But it was Jewish people trying to take Christianity and make it more Jewish by enforcing and requiring and binding the laws of, of Moses on them. And this author is saying not simply don't do that because it's wrong. He's saying uh, don't do that because you are settling for less when you do that. What Jesus did was fulfill the law. Why would you go back to it? All of these elements of the law that we see in the Old Testament are carried through into the New Covenant. They're carried through into the Christian age. Our relationship as Christians with God through Christ perfectly parallels and mirrors the elements that exist in God's relationship with man under the old law. But it's done through Jesus rather than through man. It's done through his grace rather than through his law. So why would you go back the other way? Now, we're, we've already talked about um, the angels. Jesus is better than the angels and worthy of worship. Jesus is better than Moses as a lawgiver. Uh, that, the, um, that heaven is a better promised land, a better Sabbath rest than Canaan. And then this idea of the high priest was introduced. And we see it in chapter 5 again. And what the author is saying is, you know, we had high priests and they, they were selected from among men. They were human. And that had some upside because they understood what it meant to be human but it had some downside because they were human and they didn't understand what it was to be God. But here Jesus comes along and he is both God and man. And that means that he understands what our life was like, but he was able to withstand this life to be perfect, to be exactly what we needed to be as the blameless, pure sacrifice on the cross. So his divinity made him perfect, but his humanity gave him the ability to understand us. And so he can stand in the position of a high priest, which is essentially the spiritual intermediary between us and God under the old law. He can stand in that place and do it better than those high priests did because he has all the upside and none of the downside, right? He has all the upside of living life on this earth and none of the downside of being purely human. He was also divine. Um, chapter 5 uses, uh, in chapter 5, the author uses some verses uh, from the Psalms in which David uh, says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we talked about that last time. Uh, we're going to get to exactly what that means in chapter 7, but the, the reason it matters, and I've detailed this, if you want to hear the full explanation, go back to the last video, but um, I truly believe that events occur in the Old Testament that for a very specific reason and then they're recorded for a very specific reason, later referenced in the Psalms and other poetry for a very specific reason. 
and then they're used again in the New Testament to help us understand Jesus and see with a greater perspective. And I think all of the forms in which that event takes in its different accounts serve a specific purpose while being joined together for a greater purpose. I think God is that amazing and the Holy Spirit moves that wisely that things happened that seemed to be isolated but really had a purpose. I think the interaction Abraham has with Melchizedek that we'll talk about in chapter 7 happened absolutely expressly so that it could be referenced by the writer of Hebrews for, for us to understand Jesus. I do. Or at least for the Jews to understand Jesus because they knew the story and they knew the Psalms and they knew the account in Genesis and they understood the relationship between uh, Abraham and Melchizedek and what that meant for them. And because if they didn't understand that, then David wasn't writing anything very relevant. Okay, He clearly understood it. And others understood it because they proliferated his writings in song. They sang them. They, they recited them. So it clearly was something that mattered to them. It was clearly something they understood what it meant to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek in contrast to a priest in the order of Levi or a priest in the order of Aaron. So we're going to think about that. You had the high priests that were Levites. And then you have Melchizedek. And to call someone a high priest in the order of Melchizedek means that it's somehow greater, superior to, or better than the Levites. Why? That has everything to do with what happens between Melchizedek and Abraham. And we're going to talk about that one in chapter 7, which will be the next lesson. Right now we're in chapter 6, okay? And we've already spent six minutes getting to it, so we need to dig in here. We have a little bit, of, and this happens a lot with Hebrews, we're going along building the case, right? Point by point, layer by layer, and then we stop, and the author says, well, let me address this for a minute, and then we'll come back. So let's look at the context here in chapter 5. Talks about what the high priest did. Talks about what Jesus did to make himself a high priest. And then he says at the end of verse 10 about the order of Melchizedek, and in verse 11 he says, concerning him, or meaning about Melchizedek, we have a lot to say. I got a lot to tell you, but I don't know if you're ready for it because you're kind of stuck um, in, a, in a developmental delay, right? And he uses the analogy about a developing child, a baby. You know, they have to eat very specific things and very limited things when they're first born because as they grow, their body can only process certain things. As they grow, their body changes. Our body chemistry changes. Our metabolism changes and they're able to process different things. That's why there's certain foods you're not supposed to give babies until they're a certain age. Um, I learned this one kind of the hard way, even though I knew it. So our first two children were born within uh, a few years of each other, and then there was about a five-year gap. And we kind of thought we were done having kids, and then we changed our mind, uh, as, as people are, are wont to do. So we had our third child, Oliver. Um, I was watching Oliver one night. My wife was out. Um, don't remember where she was or what she was doing with friends. So it was just the two of us. And he was still, uh, he was not quite a year old. He was probably nine, ten months old, but he's sitting up and eating solid food, starting to. Um, and I was going to feed him, so what I do, I, oh, I scrambled up an egg. That's an easy meal. Scrambled up, chop it up, feed it to him. We're going to get him working on some solid food. We got, you know, teeth coming in, things like that. I forgot a rule that I learned with the first two because I'd had that five years of not thinking about it. Eggs are on the list of things you're not supposed to feed the kids in that first year because there are certain proteins in eggs that the body doesn't know how to process yet. 
Same thing's true with when you see people with shrimp allergies. And by the way, they're not allergic to the shrimp. They're allergic to the toxins that the shrimp eat uh, in the ocean because they're cockroaches of the sea. So when you eat shrimp, if you have an allergic reaction, it's because of what the shrimp ate, not what you, uh, not what you ate specifically. Anyhow, now I've ruined seafood for you. Congratulations. Um, but peanuts, you know, soy, wheat, those kind of allergies, they're all because the, the person's body doesn't know how to process a certain protein that's part of that food. Those things can happen in adulthood if you have a malfunction with, with that system. For children, there is a period of time where under whatever circumstance, their body has not yet developed the enzyme that can break down that protein. And so what happens is their body reads that as a pathogen or a thing that's not supposed to be there and we're going to fire off the immune system and worst case scenario, everything swells shut and they can't breathe. A milder scenario is what happened for me when I was feeding Oliver those eggs. I actually put him on a plate and I was letting him try to do it himself. And he was smearing it all over his face, right? And uh, probably because of his age, if he had been much younger, it might have gone a little worse. But probably because of his age, it was a fairly mild reaction. I didn't even notice it. I picked him up, went and laid him down in his crib for just a minute and, and was getting things ready to put him to bed. I came back into the room to lay his blanket on him and his whole face was puffy and red. And I thought, what in the world happened? And then it hit me. I fed him the eggs. So <clears throat> I say all that to say, A, don't feed a baby under a year old eggs. And uh, B, um, we develop. Babies develop. They grow. We know this. Medical science has discovered these things, we think, fairly recently. But looky there. Someone in the Bible thousands of years ago was writing about it. Babies drink milk. That's all they can handle. As you grow, you can handle more and develop more. And so we go from talking about Melchizedek, and then the author kind of steps back and goes, I'm not sure if you're ready for that because you haven't developed properly. You're still drinking milk, but you're 35 years old. You need to be eating meat. You need to be processing those proteins. And you're not quite ready for it. So I've got a lot to tell you, but you need to really get ready for it. Therefore, in chapter 6, he says, Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ... Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All right. So he says, okay, I'm not sure if you're ready. Some of you should already be eating meat, but you're drinking milk spiritually. Some of you should be reaching for more advanced understanding of God, but you're still down here dealing with these basic things uh, about little rules and little laws and little things about Jesus and and, and repentance and works and faith. Okay, so the basic stuff, the fundamental foundational things, he says, you're still hung up on that. Move on. Grow up. Grow up so I can tell you about Melchizedek in chapter 7 and not have to spend chapter 6 telling you to grow up. But he's going to tell him to grow up. Uh, so we want to leave all those things behind. He says in verse 3, and this we will do. We, in other words, we're going to grow. We're going to do it if God permits. And this is something interesting. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. All right, what does that mean? It sounds like the author is saying there is a certain state you can get into if you reject God 
where it's impossible to come back. It's impossible to repent. Some people read this and they say, aha, there is a point you get to where God won't forgive you. No, that's not what it's saying. I believe God has an immense capacity to forgive that goes far beyond what we understand. This is a statement about us, not about God. It's not about God's inability to do something. It's about our inability to accept something. So look at the context of what he's saying. First of all, the description. Those who have once been enlightened, they've already heard it and come to understand it, the gospel, have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've accepted it. They've, they've given their life to Christ. They've committed themselves in baptism. They've, they've been washed and saved. These are saved people. They've been made partakers in the Holy Spirit. Okay, right there. These are people that have accepted Jesus Christ, professed faith in him, and been baptized for the remission of their sins. And they've been given the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. These are Christians. These are people who've accepted and committed. And then they change their mind. They fall away. Doesn't mean, no, they weren't Christians that then committed a sin or two. These are people that actually, they had it. They got it. They received it. And then they said, no, I don't want any part of it. Now, that's very different from making a mistake or living in error or behaving badly. It's very different from a, a living a sinful life even. I've, I've known plenty of people that have become Christians, accepted Jesus Christ, and then eventually they kind of drift back into sinful living. I think those people need to um, need to repent and, and, and ask forgiveness and be restored to a faithful life. I don't think it's impossible for them to be saved. I don't even think that's outright what this verse describes. I think this is describing a conscious rejection of salvation of Jesus Christ, accepting it, living in it, and then later saying, I don't believe it anymore. This is not the path to salvation. I no longer believe what I once said I believe. And this is not a matter of God not being able to accept those people back if they change their mind again. It's a matter of, are they able to change their mind again? It is impossible for them to come to repentance. That means that for those who have come into the kingdom to then decide that they want no part in that because that's not the path that's going to get them where they want to go, it's very hard for those people to be restored. It's very hard for them to be convinced they need to be. And on one level, I think this verse also refers to the fact that uh, it's impossible for them to come to repentance because they already did. You did it once. You know, I know a lot of people that have gotten rebaptized, quote unquote. I don't practice that. I don't teach that. Um, I encourage it for the sake of one's conscience. I've talked to people who have were baptized, and in talking to them, it seems pretty clear that they made a conscious decision of their own volition to accept Jesus Christ and be baptized. And then later, they felt like maybe they didn't know enough at the time or they did it for the wrong reasons, and I'll tell them, look, if, if you felt you were giving your life to Jesus Christ and that's why you did it, then you did it. You learned some new things later, great. God doesn't expect you to know everything right then. He just wants you to give your life to him. And then you grow. Then you develop. Hmm? Chapter 5. Um, and so I tell people, if it makes you feel better, and if you believe you need to make that statement, 
sure. But as far as I'm concerned, you're just getting wet. Baptism happens once. It happens once. Repentance happens once. And when you repent and you confess and you're baptized, that's once. And in that one time, in that event, you are brought into a relationship with God. Now later, if you say, I don't believe that Jesus can do that. I don't believe that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. I renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe there's still a place for you in heaven if you want it. I just don't believe you're going to get there. Because the odds are stacked against you. If you've, if you've seen the glory of faith in Jesus Christ and accepted it and then you reject it, I don't know how you come back from that. And I'm talking practically. I'm not talking spiritually. I mean, I, I believe that God can save a lot of people. I just don't believe that people that have had it that good and then turn away from it and settle for something less will ever be convinced to go back. So let's not make too much of that verse to say that, oh, there's some place you get to where God's the, the blood of Jesus Christ no longer works. No, I would never suggest the blood of Jesus Christ had some limitation. I would suggest that human beings have a limitation and a weakness. Okay, verse uh, 7, For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God, but if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. In other words, he's saying you need to cultivate. You need to cultivate your knowledge and your maturity. You need to grow. <coughs> Remember, all this is in the context of you're not quite ready to take on the hard stuff spiritually because you're not challenging yourself to be developed. And he's saying you need to challenge yourself to be developed. You need to work the soil. You need to cultivate this garden. You need Because the blessings only come when you put the work in to growing something. The ground that doesn't produce anything that doesn't grow or develop, it's useless. So when, when that verse that we have so much trouble with is bookended by a conversation about you're not growing and developing, and this analogy, this metaphor about ground that is cultivated and, and soil that is cared for and a garden that grows, I think that puts that verse 4 in a little bit better context that we can understand this is a challenge to develop because if you, if you don't grow, if you come out of the baptistry and, and you never take another step forward, then you put yourself at a great risk of rejecting God and Christ out of an ignorance of because you didn't grow enough, because you didn't learn enough. If I still only understood God today the way I did when I was 12 years old when I got baptized, if, if my understanding of God and of Jesus and of the church and of Scripture was the same today as it was then, I probably wouldn't be a Christian. I probably would have turned away from it. Because if you don't develop a depth and an understanding, how can you move forward? It, it, you know, it, it just does not have relevance to your life unless it grows and evolves with you. I think that's what this, these first several verses of chapter 6 are about. We have to grow and develop so that we stay strong in the faith. And all of that is wrapped up in the encouragement to do so. Why? Because he's got to talk about Melchizedek in chapter 7 and they better be ready for it. All right. Verse 9, though, little redemption here. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Ha! So he says, you know, some of you, I don't think you're ready for this. There's a lot of people that haven't, aren't developing. They're not growing. They're not challenging themselves. But, my beloved audience, great, 
by the way, whether this was given uh, as an oratory or whether this was written, great way to compliment your audience. Excellent technique. But my beloved, we are convinced of better things for you. We think, we think you're ready. We think you're going to keep challenging yourself and you're going to keep growing. Uh, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God, in other words, hey, this is kind of harsh, but we still think you're okay. Keep working. We, we're still on your side. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. They've been taken care of. You see, hospitality is a big deal to God. We don't think about that a lot, but it is. There's a whole lot in scripture about taking care of people who are in need. The traveler, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the oppressed. I mean, God really likes it when we take care of people. And here he says, you've been doing that. So we think you're on the right track. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You need to look like, you need to, you know, we all want to look like Jesus, right? And if you're struggling to look like Jesus, find someone else who looks like Jesus and just try to look like them until you get there, okay? Um Great advice for life and for our spiritual life. Uh, verse 13, for when God made the promise to... A oh, coming back to Abraham now. Very smart, very smart. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, he, why is he referencing Abraham? Two reasons. Number one, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. That would make sense to them. That would carry weight with them. And by using the things that happened with Abraham to talk about Jesus, he's just adding more credence to his point. Secondly, we're going to get back into a story about Abraham. He's bringing it back around. Ah, but Abraham did this, and Jesus noticed the idea of blessing and swearing by something greater than yourself. So in God's case, he swore by himself by saying he would do something and deliver a blessing. So, so this idea of greater and lesser than and of how blessings are related to that is starting to be introduced here. They understood the concept. We have to kind of understand the concept to get to chapter 7. All right. And so verse 15, having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. Verse 16, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. This was a common practice in their culture. You made a promise or you dealt with a dispute, and you did it by speaking in grand language, swearing by something, uh, or making the promise on the basis of something, and it always had to be something greater. So we swear by what's greater than ourselves, so that we can give an oath that, that has some, some backing to it. We still do this today when our elected officials are sworn in to office. They essentially just take a promise that they're going to be good guys. But how do they do it? By God. So help me God. All right? It kind of become a, 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 a... It doesn't mean anything to a lot of people now. I think a lot of our public servants, they say it. I don't think a lot of them take it very seriously that they're invoking the name of the Almighty. But its origins are in that place. We swear by something greater than ourselves, God, in order to confirm what we're saying is true. 
Uh, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness. I like that word because I don't know if that's a real word, but it's here. And the scholars did a fine job. The unchangeableness of his purpose interposed. I love the word interposed, by the way, too, because it, it comes in between. It slips in between. It stands in between, interposed with an oath. Okay, so God has an unchangeable purpose. And he makes a promise on the basis of his unchangeable purpose, swearing by himself to confirm an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It's beautiful language here, and you've got to read it two or three times. You really do uh, to start to understand it. Two unchangeable things here. The the purpose of God, and the oath that he makes, the promise that he makes. God doesn't change, and he makes promises. And we know God doesn't lie, so we can put those two together and say this is a singular thing that we know and have confidence in. And what is the point of this hope set before us? Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. It keeps us grounded, keeps us from floating off and flying off when the world gets crazy. A hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. There's the veil again. What is the veil? It's that separation between God and man. Quite literally, the veil, the curtain that existed in the temple, but also just the, the separation that occurs between God and man because of our humanity. But God made this promise to Abraham that he was going to multiply his people. He was going to bless them. Audience understands this. The author's going to give it new meaning with what? with Jesus. So this hope that we have is this promise that God doesn't lie and he secured the oath by invoking his own name. And now that promise, that hope that springs up in us because that promise is powerful enough to slip behind the veil. And who's there waiting? Verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. We're back to the high priest. Jesus already went behind the veil in his death and resurrection, and he's preparing a place for us. We sometimes think, oh, there's going to be the mansion, robe, and crown. That's what he's preparing for. No, he's preparing a place because he went before us. He literally, uh, he literally cleared the path. He literally tore down the wall. He literally opened the door. He prepared a place because he's there. Because when we get there, we say, he, he says, I can come in. That's the one right there that said I could come here. That's how he's prepared the way for us, prepared a place for us, a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's almost symphonic. I mean, it's beautiful and poetic. We started with this really strange concept, the order of Melchizedek, one that is foreign to us but familiar to them. And then this little bit of criticism and encouragement to, to try and be stronger and develop and grow deeper in your faith. And then he says, and you know, in the same way, Abraham was made this promise. And here's some concepts about making oaths and making promises that are important. And then, um, and why is this important? Because Jesus 
Jesus is the evidence we have that our hope is secure and that keeps us grounded and patient and it gives us access behind the curtain, behind the veil to where God is. Why do we get to go back there? Because Jesus is already there. And he's standing there as a forerunner, just like a high priest, but not in the order of Levi, in the order of Melchizedek. And by chapter 7, we're going to find out what in the world that means. But we've gone on too long today, so we're going to stop there. And I invite you back to talk about chapter 7 next time. Thank you so much.